would, uh, would love to extend a special welcome to our previewers. If you're here visiting with us this morning, would you please stand so we can say hello? Good. Welcome. We are uh, truly grateful that you're here with us, grateful that you can worship with us now, and excited for you to get to know us a little bit and for us to get to know you as well. I uh, also wanted to announce that on next Monday and Tuesday, we're going to have our annual Kuiper lectures. Um, I think there were notes up there. There's a luncheon with uh, our speaker, Dr. Kamink. Um, the email has gone out, so if you'd be interested in joining in on that luncheon, uh, there will also be a lecture in the afternoon. Um, we have been going through a series of Lenten Bible studies in all of the dorms. Uh, the first two were on the resurrection of Lazarus and the Last Supper. And we're going to pick up today kind of right after the Last Supper. Um, but last night I was talking to my daughter uh, Flannery and we were talking about um, writing. And she's written, um, she's written a few things for their school newspaper and she, she really enjoys writing. And she uh, was sort of lamenting with us. She's like, Mom, Dad, I... I have all of these great ideas, I think, that I want to share and want to write about, but then, like, almost without fail, I'll read something that already explores those ideas. So she's just finished uh, Crime and Punishment, and she's like, oh, that was everything I wanted to write about. And so, like, 15-year-old Dostoevsky, right? Um, but, uh, but it makes sense that, that there's this desire to share and talk about and write about the human condition. Um, and when we read those things that so deeply resonate truthfully with who we are, something special and magical, and I would even say divine, happens. Um, so when you think about certain characters and certain types of stories that resonate with us, there are, there are certain stories that are stories of sacrifice, people giving of themselves for others. And you'll have to forgive me, I've been in a bit of a, a Tolkien kick lately, so I, I look at the Lord of the Rings, though, right? And you have Gandalf who at the bridge of Khazad-dûm is willing to sacrifice self for the fellowship. You have Aragorn, who's willing to sacrifice his own kingship and his own life for the fellowship. And then you have Sam, totally different kind of sacrifice, but he's willing to have that long-suffering sacrifice of self for the fellowship. And they have this ultimate good that they're all reaching for. And I think when we read those things, when we see those movies, when we know those stories, they resonate with us in a way that few other things do because we know that it's right. Like, right? It, it's, it's, it's honorable and it's good in the best sense of that word. But without an end, without a reality, those remain just uh, ideals, right? They remain these, these, these things that we know are good and right, but they're just ideals unless they are made real in a real person. And that is what happens with Jesus. But before we pick up with his arrest in John chapter 18, we're going to bounce back a little bit and we're going to set some context for what's happening. And we're going to start with the antithesis of those stories that resonate so truly with us because they're good. And we're going to look at Judas Iscariot. Judas, one of the twelve, one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, the one who held the money bags. We've gotten a glimpse of him the last few chapels. But he's gone to the chief priests and the Pharisees. He's made them an offer. What will you give me 
if I can give you Jesus. So it says that they count out 30 pieces of silver uh, for this transaction. And that 30 pieces of silver is significant. In the Old Testament, it's a sign of a mere pittance. It's the amount of money that's given to an owner of a slave who accidentally gets gored by an ox. It's an amount of money saying his life isn't worth much, but here's what we'll give you. And he, in his greed and in his heart and in his self-love, takes the money. Well, when we uh, come to the story of his betrayal in the garden, um, there's something that leads up to it. And what leads up to it is the final meal that they have together. Jesus and the disciples come into Jerusalem, and they're going to eat the final Passover. The disciples ask him, Lord, can we go and set up the meal for you? And then it talks a little bit about what happens during the meal. But for us, we want to have a context of what's actually taking place. What is this Passover meal and what happens? On that Thursday, here's a picture of what would have happened, right? Jerusalem has swollen from 50,000 inhabitants to about 200,000 inhabitants as people come to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a seven-day feast that looks back to God's deliverance from, from uh, Egypt and from the oppression and slavery there. A seven-day feast, but the first day, the first day is Passover. So on a Thursday, what would have happened, the Jews would have gathered by mid-afternoon, they would have taken lambs, and it would have been one lamb per family. And a family was either an actual family unit or uh, a small group, 10 to 12 people, and they would have taken all of their lambs to the temple. And there at the temple, the priests would have slaughtered the lambs. They slaughter literally thousands and thousands of lambs. And as your lamb is slaughtered, the blood runs down and is caught in basins. And the priests would pass the basins along from one to the other until it got to the altar. And they would pour the blood of the lamb on the altar. They would then take the fat from the lamb and they would burn it on the altar of burnt offerings. And then they would give the lamb back to the family. After sunset, which is now considered the next day, after sunset of that Thursday, and now you have Friday, the household would again gather together in a home to eat the Passover lamb, which would have been roasted with bitter herbs. The head of the household would begin the meal with thanksgiving, and then over the course of the meal, this is where it gets really cool, over the course of the meal, there are four cups of wine that are drunk. The four cups signify the cup of blessing, the cup of plagues, the cup of redemption, and the cup of praise. So after they... Uh, after they um, receive the lamb, they sit, they have this meal. And in between those four cups, they would be singing, they'd be praying, they would be reading scripture. And then after the very last cup, the fourth cup, they would sing the Hallel. And the head of the household would have sung the Hallel, which was Psalm 113 to 118, recounting and remembering God's faithfulness to his people Israel from the Exodus looking all the way forward to the Messianic age. And as he sang, the people would, amen, amen, amen. So the picture is that Jesus would have been the one singing the Hallel, looking at God's faithfulness all the way through salvation history. The disciples would have been amening. But something special and unique happens during the course of their Passover meal. When it comes time for the third cup, the cup of redemption, 
Jesus says something that had probably never been uttered ever before at any Passover meal. He takes the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And what Jesus is doing there, the Passover lamb that they were eating is associated with God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And now he's saying, My body, the body of the true Paschal lamb, is going to be associated with God's deliverance once again, but this time not from a people, but from the sin that resides in their own hearts, from the slavery to that sin. And then he picks up the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he says, he took a cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is saying to them, that in his shed blood from his impending death on the cross, that is the ratification of the covenant oath that he is making with his people. And the ratification of the covenant oath, don't mean for that to sound fancy or theological, but what it means is that is the, the seal on the covenant that he's making with the people to forgive their sins. And it looks back to what Moses did at Sinai when he sealed the covenant that God was making with his people by sacrificing bulls and pouring the blood on the altar and then sprinkling the blood on the people. So they have this unique meal. Jesus makes it clear that he is the new, the true Paschal lamb, the true Passover lamb. After the meal, they sing, and Jesus sings the Hallel. And hear that, Psalm 113 to 118, Jesus singing about God's faithfulness through all of history, pointing towards the messianic age. And then scripture says that they get up and they walk to the Mount of Olives. Now in the Bible study that the uh, SMCs are gonna do next week, the final piece, they're gonna do Jesus praying in the garden. So I'm not gonna touch the prayer, but we're gonna jump in right after the time that Jesus has with the disciples uh, in the garden of Gethsemane. Right after that prayer time, when Judas shows up. Scripture says that when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus and the disciples leave Jerusalem, so they go outside of the city, likely walking right past the temple, across the Kidron Valley, looking down at the river that emptied down into the Dead Sea, and they go to Gethsemane, or the Mount of Olives, and there they pray together. Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow. Scripture says even to the point of death, the disciples are tired, and it's in this state that Judas shows back up. Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees, They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. It's likely that when Judas took those 30 pieces of silver, what he was really being paid for was an opportunity to arrest Jesus quietly, a place where there wouldn't be a public uprise, a place where the people wouldn't cause a scene. So it's likely, and I think if if this were a movie, what you could picture is sort of this split scene. Jesus and the disciples in Gethsemane praying, while Judas, who's left the Passover meal, going to the chief priests and the Pharisees, getting the guard and taking them probably first to the house where they had the Passover. And then they continue to pray, and he says, oh, 
I know where they are. They go across, they walk right in front of the temple, out the temple gates, cross the valley, and they go to the Mount of Olives. Good to know who is they. Um, what we would have looked at really would be a detachment of Roman soldiers and police that would have been provided by the chief priests and the Pharisees. We don't know how many, but we do know it's a significant number because scripture tells us that one of the commanding officers of the soldiers was present. It also means they likely expected resistance when they tried to arrest Jesus. They come carrying torches and lanterns and weapons, and you have this feel of something horribly insidious and evil taking place. You know it, right? The innocent one, the Lamb of God, the Son of God made flesh, wholly sinless. And they're coming at him with torches, weapons, and it's not the way it should be. They come under the cover of night to do their insidious work. But scripture tells us that Jesus, knowing that all was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. There is no need for a weapon here. This is the path that Jesus is choosing to walk. This is the mission that everything that has happened in his life, all of salvation history has pointed to. So he goes out to meet them and he asks, asks them, who is it you want? A victim? Yes. But powerless? No. When they name the one that they've come for, Jesus of Nazareth, here's how Jesus responds. I am he. And when he said it, the soldiers, the police, Judas Iscariot draw back and fall to the ground. And in the context of the Exodus, in the context of Passover, his identification comes alive. Jesus said, I am he. In the Greek, it's ego eimi. And if you look back to the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, ego eimi are the exact words that the living God uses when he identifies himself in the burning bush to Moses. The ego eimi is Jesus saying, I am he. I am the I am. I am the deliverer. I am the one that called Moses. I am the one who showed mercy to the Israelites at the Passover. I'm the one who went before the Israelites as they fled Egypt. I am the one who split the Red Sea. I am the pillar of fire and smoke that confused Pharaoh's army when they closed in. And now, as deliverer, I am delivering myself over to you. With that identification, with God himself saying, I am he, the weight of the glory before them, they have no choice, but they fall back and they hit the ground. And then Jesus speaks again. I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. The deliverer is going to deliver himself into the hands of sinners. He knows exactly what is before him, and he is walking willingly to the cross. But the actual betrayal, the way that it takes place, gives us a picture of the depth of the sin 
that Jesus has come to forgive. It would have been important for Judas to arrange a sign with the guard as to who Jesus was. Remember, this is not a time when they had photographs. They didn't have video. It was not uncommon for the most famous of people to not be recognized by what they look like. So, Judas has made a plan. He's going to go and kiss Jesus. So Judas approaches him and he says, greetings, rabbi. Not for Jesus, not for the other disciples, but for the guards so they know exactly to whom he's speaking. And Jesus asks him, are you going to betray me with a kiss? Do what you came for, friend. Delivering himself over, he allows us to see and have revealed the depth of the sin that he's coming to conquer. And here's what I mean by that. Judas, a friend, was his betrayer. He betrays him with a kiss, with a sign of affection. Judas, who chose money and a pittance of money at that, over the life of the one who gives life. And then Jesus Christ, God in flesh, the God who is love, stands before people armed with weapons standing against him as enemies, a picture of the hearts of all men who are dead in sin as we stand before God, seeing him as our enemy. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. And then Luke tells us that Jesus took his ear and miraculously put it back on. And scripture is clear that none of the other disciples, no one is arrested. They all flee to again fulfill what scripture has said. But then Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Scriptures are telling us that Jesus is delivering himself over to them for a very specific purpose. There was one final cup that had to be drunk. There was the cup of blessing, the cup of plagues, the cup of redemption, the cup of praise. And now the final cup is the cup of wrath. This cup is one that only he can drink. So in divine beauty, in the way that the story comes together, you have the culmination of both Satan's plan for destruction, the death of Jesus, coming to the exact same spot that God's plan for redemption comes. And they're go both going to meet at the cross. But scripture is clear that God in flesh goes willingly. He goes knowingly, sacrificially. He goes lovingly to his death because of his great love for his people. Our wrath is poured out upon him. He pays the price that we could never pay. So as we look and we see and we watch what he has done for us and we look to the world that we live in now and we hear these stories, we hear about Aragorn and Gandalf, we see Jaber Crow, we see these, these stories that, that hit us, they're reflections of what he has done for us, reflections of the true deliverer, of the true sacrifice, the one who sacrificed himself in love. So I want to encourage you, when you hear those stories, when you see those stories, hear them 
love them, know them, but always let them point to the Messiah. Because Judas, Judas saw, right? Judas was with Jesus. He heard the teaching. He saw his acts of mercy and kindness and love. He saw his power over nature. He saw his power over the demonic realm. He saw his power over death. But he chose to love his own heart and greed more than the one who poured out his life in love for him. Jesus went to the cross because he loves us. For all you who are, who are visiting, I pray that you, you come and we get to walk and spend life with you, but, but if nothing else, I want you to hear this this morning, that Jesus loves you that Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross because he loves you, because he wants you to have life in him. He doesn't want you to stand as an enemy before our holy God, but to be reconciled as a child through his spilled blood. Jesus loves you. Don't be fooled into loving your own desires, your own heart, your own greed, more than loving the one who loved us. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you, Lord, that you, um, despite our unworthiness, still chose to sacrifice yourself for us. Father, we thank you that as we look back through all of salvation history, every word, every action, every verse in your scripture, everything that happened pointed forward, looked forward, waited for you to fulfill its purposes as you came to the cross. Pray, Father, that we would see there a God who loves us more than we could ever fathom. Lord, we thank you that we are looking now um, to Good Friday, but that we look beyond that to Easter and your resurrection, that you conquer sin and death, that you might offer us life. Lord, please, by your Holy Spirit, make us unable to rest until we find our rest in you, and help us, Lord, to love you with the love that only you could give us. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please stand. Thank you.